This is Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. This podcast is sponsored by The Forward. Stay up to date with unlimited access to news, culture, and opinion all through a Jewish lens. And for our listeners, for 2NJB listeners, get six months of The Forward for only $10. That's 67% off. An exclusive subscription offer for our listeners, forward.com slash 2NJB, and get six months for 10 bucks. Also in collaboration with Arutz Sheva, IsraelNationalNews.com. And last but not least, in collaboration with Australian Jewish News, check them out at AJN.TimesOfIsrael.com. What makes up the DNA of a nation? It's hard to think of one quality or even a handful of qualities that unite millions or hundreds of millions of people. After all, societies are, at the end of the day, just a bunch of individuals. And still, it's hard not to wonder sometimes what makes a nation tick and why do certain people and certain countries stand out. Only a little over 70 years old, Israel is already a huge success story in so many ways. For decades, Israel enthusiasts have been trying to find the answer to the question, why has the Jewish nation thrived in such extraordinary ways? Is it our culture? Is it our upbringing? Maybe it's something in the tap water. Today we're joined by Michael Dixon. Michael and his co-author, Dr. Nomi L. Baum, have recently released Is Resilience, a new book which, through a series of conversations with inspiring Israelis, endeavors to answer just these types of questions. Michael is the executive director of Stand With Us in Israel, an organization that advocates for Israel and fights against the BDS movement worldwide. We're super thrilled to have Michael Dixon with us today to talk about his new book about Stand With Us and about much, much more. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm doing great. How are you? Perfect. Uh, you know, could be better. Oh, Isn't okay. that the Ju- That's the Jewish answer. That that's why the- we've succeeded. <laughs> that's not actually the analysis of the book. Oh, no. I just want to make that clear for it's all the not listeners. because we're never satisfied. <laughs> well, that's interesting. I think now I feel a sequel coming on, but that's not the focus of this one. Okay, okay. So tell us, why is it, why, why did, out of all the qualities, resilience uh, um, get the honor of being on the title? Well, it's become incredibly timely because of this global situation that we're going through right now. But the book's genesis dates back to six years ago uh, when I have, like, I've lived here for almost 15 years. And you live in Israel for any period of time and you go through a whole bunch of different stuff. And the stuff that you go through can be incredibly challenging. And we see Israelis face off against terror attacks and wars and uh, crazy political situations, crazy geopolitical situations, rockets, stabbing intifadas. Three elections. Three, ele- three elections in the last year. There have been more elections yeah. uh, in the last few years. So we have a lot to kind of face down. And yet you see in Israelis, there's a steel in their spirit. There's a metal that's waiting to be tested. It's kind of almost in their DNA. They, are, they just pick up and come back up again. I mean, I remember when I lived back in the UK and it was the horrific days of the Second Intifada. And every day there was, you kind of brace yourself to watch the news because you would see terrible things happening on the streets of Israel. And yet, almost immediately after a terror attack, Israelis picked themselves up and went on with their lives. Now, that's actually not 
a national characteristic that every single nation has. So I thought this was my theory, that there is something specifically resilient about Israelis, and I went out to test that theory. And one of the people that I met was in the Israeli, the Resilience Center of the Israeli Center for Psychotrauma in Jerusalem, and that was Dr. Naomi Baum, who I found so fascinating that I asked her to join me in this journey. And the journey was to go north to south, east to west, and find people from all different backgrounds and inspiring people, some of them well-known, some of them not well-known, but to understand what was resilient about them and what they went through and how they bounced back, or as a noted uh, family therapist mentions the term bouncing forward and actually that's one that I love so here's what bothers me with the uh, premise of the book right off the bat <laughs> come uh, on give it to me w- when I think about all the things you said I think about many nations that uh, can apply for these terms like uh, Germans Italians British Americans Russians French they all went through some really hard times and made it and rose from the ashes so but those not are the some Swiss. pretty great nations though i mean be, be it bad or good those are they're pretty they're still pretty great yeah there's still like 180 or so that you didn't name you know that no one remembers true but but still it's like it seems like those are things that not just us yeah. there are many so so you hit the nail on the head in that resilience clearly is not a specifically israeli trait I guess what we're looking at in the book are what are the key factors that make Israelis resilient and what can the world let the subtitle of the book is what Israelis can teach the world, right? Mm -hmm. So what can people around the world learn from Israeli resilience? My co-author is a pioneer in the field of resilience and she's gone all around the world and taught these techniques to other nations. So all of those nations, I'm sure you mentioned, all have their own adversity and face it down in their own certain way. And I'm sure much of it is to be applauded. But there are certain things that are specific to Israel that can be taught in other places. And by the way, it doesn't have to be a parallel situation. So Naomi, for instance, was in uh, Biloxi, Mississippi after Hurricane Katrina. And she took things that she learned from the Israeli response to the Second Intifada and all the bombings and applied it to the victims of that tragedy, helping them build their resilience. And the whole point is that resilience, you know, people are born with more or less resilience. Resilience is defined by how good looking you are, how intelligent you are, how uh, your, your situation, what you're born to, your family situation. None of those things we can change. That's just how it is. However, you can build resilience and you can become more resilient. And that's what we're looking at. So c- can you elaborate a little bit about the Mississippi story? Sure. So, well, the things that happen here can be applied to other places. So whilst they weren't facing bus bombings. You know, they they weren't dealing with the aftermath of uh, a human-made terror attack. They were dealing with destruction. Houses destroyed, lives destroyed. And how do you then bounce back from that? Well, there are very real ways to teach people to become more resilient. There are very real skills we can learn. And the keys that we identify to resilience in the book, there are three keys to is resilience, as we call it. And they are uh, empathy, flexibility, and meaning-making. Empathy means, you know, Israelis are very uh, open with their feelings. Uh, They let you know how they feel. Are they happy? Are they sad? Are they angry with you? Normally the latter two. And uh, so they they live their feelings. They emote. Um, Empathic people are very much in tune with their 
feelings. When you go through a tragedy, you might think that you need to kind of compartmentalize it and put it to one side in order to move forward and get over it. What we're saying is actually not. You need to live it. You need to understand it. One of those uh, experiences that uh, underline empathy is Yom HaZikaron, Israeli Remembrance Day for fallen Israeli soldiers and victims of terrorism here in Israel. On that day, you'll see Israelis incredibly open with their emotions, raw, it's raw. Uh, you see them crying, you see them emoting, everybody feels it. And so we're saying that's a good thing and that actually helps you bounce forward. Secondly, flexibility. You'll be going down one path and invariably at some point there'll be a stumbling block. How do you then pivot? I've never heard the word pivot mentioned so much as in this global pandemic, but pivot is the word. How do you then change your entire modus operandi of where you were going and what you were doing and move in a different direction. Your ability to do that, how flexible you are and able to be is how resilient you'll be. And finally, meaning making. How can you make meaning of a tragedy? How can you focus on a goal that helps you get through that kind of post-traumatic experience? And that's mm -hmm. something, these three keys are the things that we found to various or lesser degrees in the people that we interviewed in the book. And they, we believe, are skills that people can learn wherever they are around the world from Israelis. I wonder if the, I mean, you mentioned Yom Ziko, and I can't imagine, I mean, in the States, they also have uh, Memorial Day, right? But no one really feels it as much as they do here. And I wonder if it has to do somewhat with the size of the country. I mean, you know, I can't imagine that if Israel was hundreds of millions of people and you hardly knew anybody that was in the military that Memorial Day would mean, mean anything. Maybe we would start barbecuing for Memorial Day as well. Maybe. Uh, I, look, I think there's a point there. And the point is that when men and women serve in the army here, they are basically protecting their families. I don't think that the American military necessarily and many others feel that way. The geographical... Uh, tininess of this country means that you're never that far away from your home and you are basically defending your home plus the fact that we have mandatory army service lends its own nature to this issue so that you know we spoke with um the former spokesperson for israeli prime minister miri eisen female colonel in the idf and one of the things we discussed was the fact that she is also a mother of soldiers and we spoke about that kind of national contract that Israelis have with the country, you know, Israeli parents have. They say, at age 18, I'll be handing over my kid to you. And Half I'll of the parents, you mean? What's that? Half of the parents Which half? have this contract. Not w all of them. Why half? Because half of the parents send their kids to the military. Not 50%. No, more. More than 50%. 70. Mm. Israeli parents, not Jewish. Yeah, Israeli, Israeli parents. parents. Israeli parents, I think it's probably nearer to the Maybe 75th percentile, but, but nevertheless, yes. uh, the idea that you have this sense that your kids are going to be then serving, it, it, there's something in that that kind of makes things like Yom HaZikaron much more, it hits home that much more. You know, it's funny because he just butted in and uh, had to had to put that like. Fa but I wonder if that's also. I mean, you know, you think Israeli, you immediately think. I mean, it's part of assholes like me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> immediately, it's hard not to. No, but um, I'm. You think? I mean, it, it's obviously connected also to the Jewish uh, culture, right? The arguing and like uh, we have that tradition of the Talmud and the and the yes. you know, the discourse, but especially with Israelis, 
Um, but I guess maybe that's just like a, a more negative quality. Look, I, I don't think maybe it's necessarily write a neg- book. Sorry about what we sh- what the word shouldn't <laughs> be <laughs> taught from, from us. As long as I can find the for the decade it will take to write it, yeah. I'll be on it. It would uh, definitely sell better. Do you think? <laughs> oh come I on! I got to say it's selling yeah. pretty well. It would sell um, in BDS circles like uh, you know, like you yeah, know, you're it's right. like wow. wildfire. I didn't think this through. <laughs> QAnon, uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> love it. This is so, like therapy. So um, do, you, do you think that the arguing is like, or the it's it's almost like the not to be a friar, right? That's like the the uh, many many olim. You ask them what's the most quintessential Israeli thing. It's right. not yeah. to be a friar. When you described just now the supper. parents, the parents who said, "I thought of I just the first thing I thought of are is files. They're files." Yeah, I think uh, look the Israeli national characteristic. We put we outline it in the opening of the book. You know the sabra, right? Why the sabra prickly on the outside, soft in the inside. It's a stereotype, like you know all national uh, shorthands are stereotypes, but it's true. Um, yes, that prickliness. Yes, that uh, kind of abrasiveness on the outside, but yes, also that warm exterior as well. And all of the different characteristics that you mentioned now are part of who Israelis are. All of those lend themselves to the national character in some way. And we saw that with all these people. You mentioned Jewish. Well, not all the people in the book are Jewish, but there is something definitely in the Jewish experience because a lot of the people that we spoke to had trauma as a result of their Jewishness. You know, you can talk about Rabbi Lau who went through the Holocaust. You can talk about uh, Shula Mullah and her husband who walked through the uh, Sudan in order to get here. The trauma they had to overcome was because they were Jewish. And there's something in that as well. So tell us a bit about some of these stories. Tell us about like uh, Shula Mula, for example. Yeah, so Shula and her husband, Asha, actually, it was very... So we, we outline the keys to resilience in the book. And then we have 14 different chapters where we profile people who we met with. They were very open and very giving and generous of their time. And I think that I know they very much enjoyed the experience as well. So Shula and Asha welcomed them into uh, us into their home making us Ethiopian coffee. And then they kind of gave their testimony. And what was really interesting in that is that husband and wife, they've never heard each other's story to the fullest degree that they did in that moment. So not only did we have their own personal stories, but we watched them listen to each other's, which in itself was a whole story. Um, Look, they went through incredible hardship when they wanted to get here. They spoke about all the time about uh, the thing, we talk about meaning making, right? The thing keeping them going was to get to Jerusalem. They just wanted to get to Jerusalem. And so actually when they finally got to uh, where they were able to get onto a plane and they had this layover in France before taking them to Israel, they saw this bright and shiny hotel and all these concepts were new to them. They went to the bathroom and they couldn't believe there was like a gleaming white bathroom that would be used for such a base purpose as going to the toilet. They then brought them to Israel and Israel was a disappointment. I mean, they thought of this shining city on a hill, this Jerusalem of gold. Not only did they not get to Jerusalem for a very long time, but once they did, there's like this wall (laughs) and that's it. And that's meant to be this holy temple that they thought was still there. No one had told them that it got destroyed. Spoiler alert, it got destroyed twice. So, uh, you know, this was a real issue for them. And so they talk about the fact of what kept them going and members of their family and members of their friends died on the journey and got ill on the journey. And when they came here, a young Shula actually found herself as a caregiver to her uh, family who'd really suffered through the whole process. But also then that disappointment of you'd had this expectation and you gave everything in order to get to it. And then what happens next? And they made a very fulfilling life here 
uh, with great careers and great family and they served in the army and they tell us their story and it's and it's a really interesting concept because it's not just the journey it's about when you get there and it doesn't meet your expectations how do you then cope but how did you choose the protagonists that's a great question so I, I see this book as a love letter to Israelis, okay? Sorry to be an emotional friar. I can see you looking at me now. Um, it's okay. So uh, I, I think this is a tribute to Israelis. And maybe it takes an ole, someone who's moved here, to step back and say, hey, you guys, you're great. Um, but the truth is... Maybe the way you haven't we... met enough of them. Yeah, well, I'll spend a bit more time in the ole, see if I'm still so enthusiastic. But I think I will. Um, so the fact is, what we tried to do was take... A diversity of Israelis, all different backgrounds. You have all different ages. The youngest is in his 30s. The oldest is in her 90s. Uh, we go, they come from really different places. Their trauma, the challenge they faced is all very different because we want this to be as, I guess, expansive as possible for the reader to kind of relate to. And then each chapter is also, I think you get the color of the historical time period. We meet Avigdor Kahalani, war hero from the Yom Kippur War, and we analyze what was going on in that time in 1973. We meet Tal Brody, basketball hero who put Israel famously on the map. We talk about the Maccabi Tel Aviv that he came to, which in the 70s was like a pale shadow of what it is today. Uh, we, t we, we meet uh, Rabbi Lau. We talk about his Holocaust experience, but also how he then came to Israel and, excuse me, acclimatized himself here uh, to Israel as Nathan well. Sharansky. Nathan Sharansky. Nathan right. Living We're talking legend. About, yeah, living, real living legend. But, yeah. and, and one of the cool things about Nathan Sharansky was that he told us how humor really helped him. And that was actually a key element of all of the people that we met, having a sense of humor. So he would be in the gulag, right? on his own in solitary confinement in the worst possible situations, freezing conditions. And he would be telling jokes to the prison guards in order to anti-Soviet jokes, not just jokes, in order to get them to laugh. Because if they would crack just slightly, you know, even smile, it was like he won. So how did he keep himself going? And then when again, when he gets to Israel, how does he perpetuate his story here? So it was a really amazing experience for us. Our oldest entrant in the book is, um, that lives in, uh, uh, uh in in the north of Israel. Her name is Margalit Zinati. She's the keeper of the flame, she is called. And she isn't uh, Ashkenazi. She isn't Sfadi Mizrahi. She's just Jewish because she basically stayed in Israel. She's Israeli. She stayed in Israel. And her, she can trace back her family to the Second Temple period. And so she talks about the travails of all her family through the generations and how she's indigenous to this place and what that means to her. So incredibly fascinating stuff. Also unbearable tragedy. Um, I'll be honest with you. We cried when we met a lot of these people and they cried as well. Um, Rabbi Lauen talking about being a child survivor in Buchenwald had tears in his eyes. I mean, I imagine he's told his story to people and audiences hundreds of times. And yet it comes, it's so real. It like lives with them right here. So we saw that in his eyes as he spoke to us. Uh, Gadi Yarkoni, the mayor of the Eshkol uh, municipality area in the south, which borders with Gaza, was standing with two friends when one of the last uh, bombs, one of the last rockets coming in from Gaza in Operation Protective Edge, killed his friends and blew his legs off. And he talks to us about sitting uh, in shorts, post-operative, uh, with like kind of a formal shirt and, a, and, a, and shorts. He's sitting in Geneva when he's giving testimony to the UN who were berating Israel at the time. 
and he's making Israel's case. Israel at that time was actually disputing the UN uh, review, the UN uh, report, and wasn't giving official testimony. He made the effort to get there to Geneva to represent his country uh, because he felt it was important to do. There's incredible determination in a lot of these people, and they had incredible stories to tell us. And I'll just mention one more, Dr. Amit Goffer, who uh, was the successful CEO of an MRI company. And his kids won a raffle ticket. They won a prize, an, a an ATV, right? A tractoron. Mm -hmm. uh, he didn't want it. He had no use for that. So he's to make it up to them, he rented ATVs for the day. It proved to be fateful because the ATV hit a rock turned over and in that moment he just knew something terrible had happened to him he'd been made a quadriplegic he talks to us about how he got through that terrible period of recuperation and recovery and then how he turned his mind to a single focus we talk about meaning making and that was to create this rewalk system this exoskeleton that helps paraplegics walk again the ironic thing he was a quadriplegic and it doesn't help him walk again although he would later go to create this system called Up and Ride, which actually helps quadriplegics stand up so at least they can have the dignity of being at eye level with the people they're meeting. So people who really turn their lives around, again, we don't talk about it as bouncing back, we say bouncing forward, because you're never quite the same as you were when you went through the experience. You're always challenged, you're always in a different place, but they manage to make meaning from these incredible adversities. So how was the book born? I mean, is there a story of resilience in you? Do you do you somehow relate to this? Do you, did you find yourself at some point kind of uh, bouncing forward out of, I don't know, tragedy or? So I never had, thank God, uh, any personal tragedy that I think, I mean, I've undergone things like everyone has, right? Operations and things, you know, we've all had our personal issues. and But that for me is the point. I think that everyone faces adversity and challenge every day. Now, little did I know that when this would be published, we'd be in the midst of the COVID-19 global pandemic and everybody would feel like every day is like a battle and a struggle. And so many people do feel like that right now. And that actually has been borne out in the reception to the book because I've been overwhelmed by the amount of people saying to me, wow, actually this gives me hope and inspiration because I'm going through something right now. And I'm able to look at the personalities and either because I feel like what they faced was so much more or because I'm taking life lessons from them, I actually is helping me in my everyday today. That for me is incredibly gratifying thing. No, I feel like I've been a observer of Israelis. Um, I mentioned to you before we came on air that I, you know, I live on one side of the country and I commute to the other. If you want to see Israelis at their most expressively emotional, watch them behind the wheel. My <laughs> God, they are just tensed up. You know, in England, where I was brought, born and bred, we have this thing where we have this hand gesture, you know, like, no, you go ahead. <laughs> right? You can spend a couple minutes at a stop sign doing that. Exactly. I mean, exactly. Right. So, so you see a lot of different I've, I've had the opportunity and also through my work at stand with us i've uh you know we i meet a lot of political leaders i meet a lot of people who are in interesting positions celebrities that kind of thing and i'm always observing how they react and so i think just as a naturally curious person as somebody who loves israel unapologetically now uh and uh and I come off on this podcast. <laughs> no, no. An Iranian Ayatollah. <laughs> um, so it's, for me, it's just about observing 
what Israelis are and who they are. And I think that gets borne out in the book. So let's talk about Stand With Us. Yes. Do they? Yes. They stand Not with us. you, but everyone else. No, okay. we do. I'm sorry for this dynamic. That's <laughs> he's going to he's gonna bounce back, for, bounce forward. Uh, from that's it. what yes. I'm trying to test, if you will. Uh, we do stand with you. We, we stand, you stand with us, no, they we stand with you. They stand with us. That's a great question. Depends on who's they. Look, Stand With Us was born out of a desire to educate people more about what is already is actually it came from tragedy like a lot of the stories we tell and actually one of the stories we tell in the book is that of sherry mandel sherry mandel lives in tekoa uh an american ola that's a settlement i think it right? is a settlement community yeah and she uh her son was playing hooky from school one day kobe mandel uh he and his friend yosef ishran and uh they never came back uh, they were found in a cave. They were brutally murdered uh, in a horrific way. And it was a tragedy that kind of really shook people up, as it should. Except that in a lot of newspapers in the West, and certainly in the Los Angeles Times, which is where Stand With Us was uh, set up, it was almost like the victim was being blamed for his own murder. Well, he was a settler, so therefore, you know, he had it coming to him or something awful. And so actually that was the straw that his, the death of those two boys, the murder of those two boys, I should say, was the straw that broke the camel's back for Stand With Us to be set up. We were set up in a living room of Ros and Jerry Rothstein, our founders in Los Angeles, uh, together with Esther Renza, our president. And they brought a bunch of people together in a living room, much like we're sitting in now, and said, what is being done to counteract misinformation about Israel and to actually tell people the truth about Israel and the answers they received from people all across the kind of Jewish community, political spectrum, were not good enough. And so they said, we got to do something. And so they started creating materials. They put a brochure about Israel, which they called Israel 101, on the seats of their local synagogue. And then they moved out to educate students because they felt that campus was the battleground where often Israel's reputational war is being fought. And lots of young people were turning around and saying, I actually don't know what to do when I'm given these kind of accusations that are being made. So they started making educational materials, grew out West Coast to East. This is 19 plus years ago. We've now grown out internationally. We're active on five continents. Uh, we have a huge social media reach, uh, reaching millions of people all around the clock on all different social media platforms. We're running programs in the high school, for middle school, in the university campus. We have a pro bono network of attorneys who are there to assist predominantly campus students but actually anyone who needs help fighting back against a bds case where they're being persecuted because they're israeli or just pro-israel we've built i believe a movement of people who are jewish and not jewish from a diversity of backgrounds who want to support israel and want to educate people about israel and also to fight back against anti-semitism and that's been an incredibly gratifying experience how much I, I, I gotta ask this how much are, is it true that we're our own worst enemies like do you find that in stand with us's endeavors to kind of advocate for israel across the world but especially in the united states are you guys i'm sure a lot of the work is i mean when you hear about stand with us's mission you assume that it's to explain to non-jews non-israelis about israel but do you guys have an effort to uh, to uh, explain to Jewish Americans and to to Jew non-Israeli Jews about Israel's I don't know uh, legitimacy? Yeah, that's a great question, Ethan. Because the fact is, we started with Jews. I mean, we it, the the stand with us. The point of stand with us, certainly when we were beginning 
was to educate Jews about their connection to Israel. You know, I've met birthright groups before who don't quite understand why their program is called birthright. Like, what you know, where, why, why Israel per se? And that's incredibly important because if we're the people of the book and if we're the people that like to, you know, sit around at the Seder table and we say that every generation needs to tell that story to the next, if we can't express ourselves or we don't know our own story, then we're going to be in big trouble. And the other side has it down very easy because they just need to do negative stereotypes that can be one or two words against Israel and they make their case. So yes, 100%, we have to teach Jews and especially young Jews to have a sense of understanding of who they are and where they come from. The fact is, you know, Chinese people come from China, Indians come from India, Jews come from Israel. Let's share that with the world. Let's tell that but, story to the world. What I'm saying is that there's some, or I mean, some of the most, uh, uh, I guess, um, some of the most like lethal quote unquote organizations for us, for Israel are Jewish organizations, right. uh, you know, unfortunately and ironically. So do, do, is there any kind what, of, what do you mean? Uh, you know, I don't want to name names, but, uh, no, people, J street. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of organizations. <laughs> there's a lot of organizations that are, that are Jewish organizations in the United States that, it almost feels like they're combat they're battling against Israel. Yeah, so look, I think that we are never saying that you can't criticize Israel and we're never saying you can't have a healthy and robust debate about Israel and Jews can be as self-critical as anyone else. You know, when some people from like the opposing side from me, you know, an anti-Israel crowd, they say, oh, well, you're saying you can never criticize Israel. I say to them, get a go to Israel, get in a cab and start talking to the driver. You want criticism of Israel? You'll get it straight away. So it's not about that. It's about just playing on a level playing field. So when you come to Israel, as somebody who doesn't know Israel, it's not a blank sheet of paper. Chances are you'll be bogged down by negative media reports and a whole series of propaganda. And so that's already coloring your perception. So it's not like I'm meeting Israelis in Israel for the first time. It's like I'm, I've got this kind of propaganda perception of what Israel is. So I'm starting from sub-zero. I guess what we're saying is just judge us on the same playing field that you would judge anyone else. And you can have different political opinions about what the government of the day of Israel is doing. You know, Stand With Us has existed through different governments, left and right. But just judge us in a fair way. That's what we're saying. These are interesting times to be advocating for Israel and fighting the BDS because on one hand, the fight against BDS gains so many points with the Abraham Accords, right? You see the Middle East is changing. We're gaining so much support from Arab countries. On the other His hand... His resilience is on sale in the United Arab Emirates as of really? yesterday. Yeah, in Arabic? Cool. It's in English right now. Will there Plans, be in Arabic? Yeah, yeah, inshallah. Amazing. Um, so that's the good news. But when you look, for example, uh, at the United States and some um, very prominent groups inside the party that's going to control the United States in the upcoming years, um, it looks like we're fighting an uphill battle there. So how do you see that situation? I agree with you to an extent. I think that we are. Uh, I think that we just have to understand that there are entry points to anyone when it comes to Israel, if they're willing to give us a chance. And I've seen that throughout my career. One of the things we do here is we uh, have a program for Israelis. My, my contention has always been 
that Israelis are the best ambassadors for Israel. The most important letter I in terms of public diplomacy in Israel isn't the I that you put at the beginning of the word Israel, it's the one at the end, Israeli. So we've always had Israelis welcome people from all over the world into Israel and to show them Israel through their eyes. Because for me, it's not about the politics, it's about the people, it's about what Israel really represents. So for me, people who are, can categorize themselves as progressive as they like in America or anywhere else can find many, many uh, points of interaction with Israel that will speak to their values. And so we have to be able to tell that story and speak in that language because I think we can appeal to everybody. And, and my experience has borne that out. You know, we did a program for students, American student leaders who were coming to Israel. And uh, I was at the APAC policy conference in Washington, D.C. And someone came over to me. Uh, he was a Latino student by the name of Sebastian. And he said to me, Michael, I just wanted you to know uh, that I lied to you. Now, Sebastian had been on one of our programs here in Israel the year prior, the summer prior. And so I was kind of taken aback by what he said. He said, I lied to you. I said, what do you mean you lied to me? He said, well, I knew when you were recruiting for your trip to Israel that you weren't going for like people who necessarily were pro-Israel or people who were like hating Israel. You wanted kind of people on the fence who would see Israel through their own eyes. And that's what I said I was. But the truth is that I hated Israel. Uh, I, I hated Israel and I wanted to come. I said, why do you want to come to Israel then? He said, I wanted to come to Israel because I wanted to see the racism through my own eyes and the apartheid. And I wanted to see it for myself so I could tell people about it. But when I came, I saw the opposite. And you should know now that I don't hate Israel anymore. I call myself a Zionist. Well, we hired Sebastian and he became our director of Hispanic outreach. True story. So you can change people's minds. You can open their eyes. You just have to get to them. Cool. So what's the next big project then? Wow. So interestingly, we have had to pivot, to use that word again, in Corona times and do everything virtually. We have a center in King David Street where we normally met, welcome tens of thousands of people from all over the world in different languages and run programs for them to educate them more about Israel. That's not happening right now. We hope it will be renewed. Uh, but in the meantime, we're doing virtual programming all across the board. And actually, it's expanded our reach to people everywhere because we're working around the clock. So we pride ourselves in having very young, dynamic, energetic educators uh, who can speak to many different audiences, high school, middle school, campus and beyond. And so really what we're running is a virtual educational workshop where you can take your pick from a whole variety of experiences. And we're actually doing tours as well. So tourism shut down. We have our tour guides with a camera crew go and do a tour of Jerusalem. So it's actually been amazing. We've taken some groups and schools, for instance, to go, to go see the old city of Jerusalem and see the Kotel. They're seeing it for the first time. Many of them had had trips planned and they now can't do them. And so we're able to show them through our eyes with our tour guide who has to all the time walk backwards on those kind of old city cobbles. It's very dangerous, but I'm told our insurance covers it. Uh, they see it through through our camera lens. They're experiencing Israel for the, the first time. And actually, they send us notes to place in the Kotel. So we'll, we'll take their notes, we'll print them off, and we'll put them in the Western Wall. And we're actually hosting like bar and bat mitzvah groups as well in Jerusalem. So that's been pretty special and amazing. Talk about turning lemons into lemonade. There's an example. <laughs> it's actually like in a way it opens up a lot of opportunities because many people who might not have been able to make the trip over or not yeah. have had the means, all of a sudden now it's, you know, it's, it's possible. Totally. And I think, by the way, the future is both. 
you know i think the future is virtual and the future is real so please god we'll have people come back to israel and at the same time uh, we've got this whole new virtual world people are used to it they're used to learning and experiencing in that way and that mm -hmm. really opens up many more possibilities and our ability to be effective us as an organization and people who love israel is going to be dependent on our creativity believe me there are people who wake up in the morning and they're they're waking thought is how can i mess around with israel today and what new creative scheme can i come up with in order to give israel a black eye well let's be at least as creative if not more creative than those guys and we're going to be incredibly successful and that's really been the story of stand with us amazing so what really? can we plug so the book is called is resilience is resilience yes uh, what israelis can teach the world and it's everywhere it's everywhere it's out on amazon free global shipping and book depository and if you want to find your local stockist go to is resilience like is or is resilience yeah dot kindle? Com. it's kindle edition yeah as well okay oh, uh, well yeah that's good and it's gonna be in arabic soon i'd like it to be in many more languages we're, we're talking to a lot of different people it's super exciting so yes the idea i would love everybody to love israelis and they can do it in their own language as well Perfect. Nice. And stand with us. You accept donations? We certainly do. We only exist. We're an independent organization. So we don't exist on any government funding or anything like that. We only exist on the funding of generous people who believe in what we do in fighting anti-Semitism and supporting Israel. And people can go to standwithus.com slash donate and give. And uh, we hope that they will support our work. And stand with Amazing. us is also on Instagram. Oh, yeah. Big Facebook. time. Instagram, Facebook. Those uh, tours you Twitter, mentioned, TikTok. They can find, Ooh. yeah, I know. Uh, they can find me also on on these platforms as well. I'm Michael Dixon, D I C K S O N, uh, and I'll be happy to interact and engage with all your listeners. You do like uh, lectures on Zoom to communities and stuff like that. Yes, so yes. people can reach out. Standwithus.com. They can find all of our and content. those virtual tours also there. All through there, yeah. Okay. Standwithus.com. Perfect. Amazing. Thanks for having me. Can this Thank be called sure. three nice Jewish boys just for today? <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. Okay. For sure. Um, Before we go. Although I wasn't a good nice Jewish boy you this were, time. You were, so you were. You came do. through in the end. It's, you came through in the end. Two nice Jewish okay. boys in an Ayatollah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, guys, before we go, we uh, are sponsored by The Forward. Yes, forward.com. Go to forward.com slash 2NJB to get a uh, exclusive offer for 2NJB listeners. That's how forward. you show support. Yes. So you also get access to the forward for a great, great price. You get six months for like 10 bucks and you support the show. Uh, so again, forward.com slash 2NJB. And yes, and Old Sheva, IsraelNationalNews.com. Check them out. They're on the interwebs. They're on yes. Facebook. Uh, go to their Facebook page, go to their website, and stay tuned. They have great content also. Also, Australian Jewish News, ajn.timesofisrael.com. We are worldwide. Yes. Like, almost like staying with us. Almost. Most, most, Not quite. Yeah. We're on, You're getting we're on uh, three, three continents. Three continents, yes. That's pretty cool. You guys are on five. That's all right. We have a slightly bigger office than your apartment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, and yeah, we accept donations, guys. Yes. So if you like the show, go to 2NJB.com slash donate. Also, if you like the show, uh, we've been getting so much hate recently for talking politics. Oh, yes, uh, yes. And better reviews on iTunes. So if you have iTunes... We've been getting some love too, but we yes. want more love than hate. Yes. I'm going to do that right after this so show. Go to iTunes, find the show on Apple yeah. Podcasts and give us a good review. 
yeah. to fight the hate. And finally, uh, we're on YouTube. Subscribe, and that's it. Cool. That is it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank so you so much, much for coming. Thanks for having and me. And we hope uh, to have uh, Dr. Naomi Baum next time. She also. would love to. She would so love we'll to come. And you'll, you'll find her absolutely fascinating. She's an amazing individual, and I wish everybody much is resilience. Yes, and health. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you Good so luck. much. Bye, Bye guys. guys.